is March 3rd, Feels good to be back in Decot's land. How about you, Ian? You feeling good this week? Oh, I am so excited for this episode. Yeah, another fucking episode of, well, just one of the greatest artists that we've known ever. Yeah, this is literally my favorite guitar player ever. And being a metalhead, if you guys ever hear his music, you're going to be like, wait, this isn't metal at all. Damn right it isn't, but it's some of the hardest shit to play. Oh, damn, are we not doing metal? I think I, I, think I pr- got ready for the wrong episode then. Oh, man. Yeah, you got to take that face paint off. Oh, man. But it took so long to get on. <laughs> these, these giant Take boots. off those uh, those spiked wrist belts. Yep, yep. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. All right. And take off the gear. Well, this is embarrassing. We're, yeah, we're going down south. <laughs> yeah, I'm dressed in the complete wrong way then. But, yeah, I've been wanting to do this guy for a while, pretty much since we started this podcast, but I'm glad we waited because... I've definitely gotten better at being able to like formulate my research and stuff like that. And it took some digging to actually get the information on this guy. Well, yeah, because this is another situation where we get the resurgence in the later careers. So, you know, he wasn't even that famous back in the day. So you have to, you, there's a little reverse research that involves, we'll, we'll quit, uh, you know, hanging in front of your face. This week we have mississippi john hurt and i'm sure y'all super excited because most of you totally know who that is but i promise you're in for a fucking treat this week this guy is amazing yeah you guys gotta listen to his songs they're like soft and awesome and just like the way he finger picks his guitar is just it's it's beautiful and amazing yeah it's like one of the softer sides of delta blues but honestly as far as uh you know guitar technique and the overall theme and feel of most of these songs it's unmatched it really is and so today i want to start this podcast off with a sign that is in his hometown and it says john s hurt was a pioneer of blues and folk guitarists self-taught hurt rarely left his hometown at avalon where he worked as a farmer Although he recorded several songs in 1928, including Avalon Blues and Frankie, he lived in relative obscurity before he was rediscovered in the blues revival of the 1960s. Wow, that's fucking amazing. I hope there's a st- like a sign in my hometown that's at least half that cool. <laughs> <laughs> there's not. There, the sign in my hometown would be like, nobody knows who Pat is, frowny face. It's a little tiny like pink sign on the side of the freeway. <laughs> pat Pat grew up here go the other way (laughs) pat who question mark you're gonna die in obscurity (laughs) whoa damn is that a threat Ian? Uh, (laughs) it's a little you know late in the podcast for you to murder me i got a brand new razor and a 44 gun (laughs) i'm gonna cut you if you stay here and shoot you if you run yeah i know i know i know i get always the 44 gun with you ian well and so 
we're definitely going back into the the way back times where you know they weren't exactly sure when people were born the way back times. <laughs> the way back times of like back 120 the, years ago. Yeah, back in obscurity when, <laughs> when elephants and dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> well, and so Mississippi John Hurt was born John Smith Hurt. Like I said, his actual birthday, kind of a mystery. He was most likely born on March 8th, 1983. 1883, excuse me. Wow. I was going to say, damn, I'm only a couple years older than him. (laughs) I haven't had to do an 1800s birthday in a while. Yeah, no, 1800s birthdays are uh, pretty interesting because it feels so fucking far away. But just because we've done this podcast like the way we have, I know for a fact like 1800s birthdays are actually not that ridiculous. Like in my like, because it feels so fucking far away. Like, but it's the, really not. Yeah, the eighteen hundreds feels like you're like, oh my god, back in <laughs> like, like <laughs> when, my grandpa's parents. Yeah, no, exactly. It's not even that long ago, but it feels like you should be sailing the ocean blue or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, and the reason why I say this, the reason why I said that date. Is because that's the date that's written down in the Hurt Family Bible. Apparently, back in the day, that's where you know you write the birth dates of every everybody. <laughs> yeah, you write them in the Family Bible. Apparently, damn. <laughs> and this date is accepted by most of his biographers and you know researchers and stuff. But the birth date on his gravestone is March third, eighteen ninety two. Other researchers have used other dates uh, like March 8th, 1892, March 16th, July 2nd, July 3rd, May 5th. So so pretty much any day. Yeah. Any day within 1893 and 1892. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as it's anywhere in those years, you're probably pretty close to his birthday. But does it really matter if it's in the 1800s? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, really, birthdays are only significant nowadays. When were you born? Oh, whenever I came out, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling we put a lot more significance, at least on this very specificity of uh, of birthdays nowadays. I have a feeling that the farther you go back, the probably the the more I don't know far or like the the wider the area in which you quote your birthday. Like, when were you born? <laughs> I don't know. Spring of a couple years ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> And you're speaking. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I grow up fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already farming and have a whole family to myself. I don't know why they have like Delta accents because we went back <laughs> into antiquity, but whatever. It's it's Mississippi John Hurt. We got to stay with the theme. And so, yeah, he was born in Teoc in Carroll County, Mississippi, and was the eighth of ten children, seven brothers and two sisters. Jesus fucking Christ. We always get this when we go back to the 1800s, too. Yeah, but they didn't have TV to distract them or anything. Yeah, and mom and dad are alone in that room all night, all quiet every time. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Nothing better to do. Sun goes down. We can't see shit. Hey, you guys, ignore what's going on in here. (laughs) There's some rustling, but don't even worry about it. Go play outside. But, Dad, it's dark. I don't care. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm making someone for you to split the chores with. (laughs) (laughs) In nine more months, you'll have a little baby brother, hopefully, that'll help you chop some wood. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so his parents, 
were Paul Hurt and May Jane or Mary Jane. Wasn't sure about that one. I, I saw both. I, I prefer to think of her as Mary Jane Smith, not <laughs> May Jane Smith. But unfortunately, his father would, you know, disappear somewhere within six months of his birth. Oh, wow. Cool. And his mother would acquire some land in Avalon and move the whole family there. In a letter to Tom Hoskins, who I will explain later, he would write that when he was two or three months old, he moved with his mother and siblings five miles north of Teoc to live in Avalon and Valley area. This was actually 10 miles away on the eastern ridge of the Delta, and the town of Avalon had a population of under 100. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like, there wasn't even a exact number. Like, I feel like the uh, the census guy came through and was like, how many people are here? And the guy's like, well, we got John and Bessie. And he goes, all right, got it. Under 100. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're done here. <laughs> Thanks for your time. And so this is where Mississippi John Hurt was raised. In a town called Avalon, halfway between Greenwood and Grenada. Hell yeah. He'd teach himself how to play guitar beginning around the age nine. At first, he'd kind of adapt that, like, faster, more, like, uh, dancey style of blues, you know, like a lot of the bluesmen played back in the day. Yeah, the the hop joint blues. Yep. And uh, he would actually start learning this from a bluesman named Rufus Hank. Oh, that's a bluesman name right oh, there. Oh, right? Rufus <laughs> Hank. And he played a 12-string guitar and a harmonica and no recordings of him, which sucks. I would have loved to hear anything he played. Yeah, that'd be a, that'd be cool, especially like the 12-string guitar and the harmonica combination. That's a that's a lot of like, I don't know, width and breadth of the of the sound, I guess. For one person to be producing that much noise, I bet you yeah. it really would fill a room. Well, and another person he learned from was a musician named William H. Carson, a visitor at the Hurt Home in Avalon. So, so not William H. Macy. No. Okay. I know he looks old, but he ain't that old. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure if William H. Macy can play the guitar as good as Mississippi John Hurt either. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident he probably can't because Mississippi John Hurt is arguably one of the best guitarists that I've ever heard. And Mississippi John Hurt had a statement about William H. Carson, and he'd say, I wasn't allowed to bother Mr. Carson's guitar. I would wait until he fell asleep at my house, and then I would slip his guitar into my room and try to play. After that, my mom bought me a secondhand guitar at the price of one fifty. Oh, yeah, buck fifty guitar. That's a good start. And this was a black guitar of unknown make, but he would call it Black Annie. <laughs> That's cool. I really need to start naming my guitars. Yeah, seriously. I've had mine for a decade, and I don't have a name for it. I'm sure I named it at one point, but... It's probably dumb anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably, why you forgot it. It's probably a terrible name. <laughs> you blanked it out of your memory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only instrument of mine that actually has a name, I believe, would be my old accordion, which is just named Annabelle Lee after a like a Poe poem, but... Is that the one that uh, has the fucked up read or whatever? Yeah, the one with the fucked up read and the uh, and the, the mismatched straps and everything that I used <laughs> to play back in the day in our band. Yeah, yeah. It's my favorite. Well, and when he became a young man, he... And in this day and age, I'm guessing, you know, like teenager. Yeah, when he was, <laughs> when he was when a he, strapping when he, age of eight. <laughs> you know, he'd start laboring as a farmhand and a railroad worker. You know, and... He'd play at, like, country dances, apparently, and fish fries. We'll get into a little bit more of that later, but, you know, got to occupy your time in the South with no TV and no radio or anything, right? Yeah, they were probably doing a lot of fish fries. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. That sounds like a really good time, way to spend your time, though. Well, and the thing is, is he considered music something of a hobby. He never really thought of it as a career. Yeah, he never intended to be a professional musician. Yeah, I mean, he would spend countless hours playing it, but, you know, that was, I would assume, to occupy his life because, yeah, you know, he, he worked, didn't have anything else to do because it's the fucking 1800s, man. He worked, you know, multiple jobs and went home and played guitar. Yeah, I, I, I knew that life for a long time. Because, I mean... You know, like I said, of his other jobs, he'd also end up picking cotton, you know, in the area, too. So, I mean, he just did what he had to do to make ends meet. Yeah. But his line of work was completely different than the chosen profession of his brother, Hennis, who operated an illegal whiskey still in the valley. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I mean, which is, you know, probably also a viable option with only a hundred people there yeah no exactly hell at least you know you got clientele yeah and it's probably cheaper and i'm not gonna say it tastes better but it'll get you drunker anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's easier to get that's for sure and apparently you know within avalon there was both blacks and whites you know living reasonably close to each other you know with a hundred people are not that close but you know it wasn't like the normal like racism type stuff like the rest of mississippi yeah. was around this time you know yeah, so it was a more harmonious community. Yeah, you know, they just kind of got along because there was there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't enough people for anyone to be mad at anybody. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, he seemed to be comfortable with this lifestyle. This is where he's from. This is where he wanted to stay, basically. Hell yeah! And so you know, he would start playing his first performances around like. 1910 like actual performances or yeah whatever you could call them in this area right yeah go play live i don't know i don't even it, it would be a gig do you think they said gig yet no nah, he probably just said something along the ways of yeah they want me to go over there and play my guitar <laughs> yeah oh, they want me to go pick my guitar in front of a bunch of people we're gonna go Damn, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, harping on the delta accent tonight. <laughs> anybody out there who actually has the delta accent i'm sorry that's all in good fun. <laughs> okay, yeah, Ian's not sorry at all. You heard him, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. My words speak for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> you got a problem with that? <laughs> uh, anyway. Anywho. <laughs> so... Unlike a lot of the stuff I read in my youth about this guy, he most likely did not play like your typical parties and like juke joints, like uh, or j- hop joints or whatever they called them yeah. in the area, because his music was just a little too tame for that, you know. And you know where traditional Mississippi bluesmen, you know, would play that stuff and get people dancing. His music was a little too intricate, and his voice was just a little too soft for that. So most likely, you know, he just play and get togethers with friends and neighbors and stuff like that and you know little shops around town you know just nothing like crazy yeah i can see that because a lot of uh what you see of the recordings in that era and also just what you uh kind of get from hearsay is that loud uh boisterous music was very popular because it was more able to get across a crowd Softer music was not popular at the time because it did not enunciate over a room and there was no other way to view the music at the time. So Yeah, you had to have you had to 
be quiet. Yeah, exactly. So you either had to have a giant room that was silent and then you had to play loud or you had to be in a tiny room with only a few people and then you could maybe play quietly if everybody was silent. But you got to remember these guys weren't weren't miking up. Oh no. And if you you'll listen to John Hurt like if anybody who is, you know, a really de- a real cool Decots fan and actually listens to the, you know, the the Spotify playlists and stuff, you'll hear the songs afterwards and you'll know what we're talking about cuz he's like he's super soft. Even his most enunciated like when he's really jamming it, it's like medium volume for any other musician. <laughs> Well, and, like, you can even notice it on the early recordings of his compared to, like, you know, blues recordings at the same time period where he's got a lot more clarity than most people do in that time because they had to play loud, so that's what they did. Yeah. Or he always just played his thing, you know? When when you're a town of 100 people, you know, there's not a whole lot of people to listen to. <laughs> well, exactly, and I, I think in that environment, he probably it probably nurtured that kind of quieter mentality because then, you know, it didn't... It wasn't about, you know, obviously you're not disturbing the neighbors when you live on farms miles apart, but, you know, when you, everybody gets together and you guys are sitting in the tavern or whatever it is, like a little quiet song in the corner is often better than, you know, somebody up there trying to be super cool. Playing you mean some, like we playing some tried thr- to be super cool when uh, we played in taverns? I mean, we're, we're cool. We were super cool. We Ian, tried to be super it. cool. You're trying to make my feelings hurt, Ian. <laughs> It's working. I know. But even with, you know, playing around the area and working three or four jobs at once, you know, at 18 years old, he gets married to Gertrude Hoskins. Oh, number one. Gertrude Hoskins. Now, that's a hot name. They were married in 1916, and this marriage didn't last long, but they would have a son named T.C., who would end up becoming the father of Mary Frances Hurt who is the current administrator of the Mississippi John Hurt Foundation. Oh, that's cool. So that's that's where the family line spawned off that is currently available. Yep. That's that's I, I always love those little connections. That's one of the things that I think is most rewarding for my like all of our Decatza adventures here is feeling and understanding those little threads through the world. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you get that little like you know this guy, this guy, this guy, and then you know great granddaughter is currently the you know the head of the foundation for Mississippi John Hurt. Like it's just really interesting. And you know, soon after they would split up and. He'd get married to his second wife, Jesse Nelson. Oh, yeah. And they would go on to have several children and remain together for the rest of John's life. Hell, yeah. That's fucking cool. And so number two, you know, number one went real quick and number two is going to stick around. Number two is forever. And so, you know, raising a family, he becomes a sharecropper, also a day laborer, spent five months laying train tracks. And it's actually there that it is believed that he would learn railroad songs like Spike Driver Blues. Oh, yes. Which, honestly, in my opinion, his railroad songs are the best. See, I differ with you. I think he sings, like, the greatest gospel songs that have ever been sung. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of the gospel music genre, but his gospel songs, just they really strike a chord with me. I'm not religious at all, but I gotta say, gospel has always been something that is like, really hit with me. Like, ever, or like, also, even since, like, back in the day, before I could even understand it, like, I really, really love gospel music. And it's probably because, you know, there's a lot of, like... I don't know. There's a lot of passion and enthusiasm behind and it. rhythm. So. There's it's yeah. always very like most gospel songs are very heavy on the rhythm side of the music. You know, 
Well, and and not just rhythm, but vocal rhythm, which is something right. that I myself very much get a lot of elation from. So, and so around 1923, Willie Namor, a white farmer in Avalon who played fiddle at local square dances. You know, when I say local, you know, you're talking like they're going like 10, 20, 30 miles out there, you know, because ain't a whole lot around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's about as far as we went. <laughs> I've actually gone further. Oh, I've actually gone further, says Ian. Mm, sorry. Oh, Ian's massive five mile tour. My, my ego is inflating as we speak. <laughs> and so anyway, he would end up asking Mississippi John Hurt to play with him. When his regular guitars couldn't, which, you know, yeah, in Avalon wasn't a big deal, a black man and a white man playing together. Yeah. But, you know, that's actually a big deal for the rest of the state. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that would kind of show, like, the degree of his ability, you know, where in a state where a lot of joints that were all white would not accept him in, he's like, nah, he's my guitar player. Yeah, this is this is my guitar player. Like that's that is pretty badass. And that's not only just a badass move on the singer's part, but just just badass in general. And so a few years later, Narmer would win a fiddle contest in Carroll County, and it would attract the attention of a scout for the OK Record Company, a man named Tommy Rockwell. And this is O K E Y, right? O-K-E-H. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. I, I knew it had a weird uh, spelling because we actually covered this in one of our researches. But yeah, O-K-E-H is how you spell that record company, which is really cool. Which is also a record company we seem to mention a lot, you know, around this era. Yeah, and, uh, in not just this era, but this region. I think this is, this is very, true. it's very localized, this particular re- uh, record company. Well, I mean, this company was combing the South in the middle 1920s looking for artists to record for, you know, the phonograph. The phonograph. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, we made it all the way back to the phonograph. (laughs) (laughs) That was just such such an interesting moment because it just drew me all the way back to, like, our first episodes. Even the the mystery episode of Decots that never got played, which is really more about recording equipment than it is about an actual... uh, artist like that's that's where we started the the whole yeah we started talking about yeah. phonographs and uh the wax cylinder the wax cylinder yep. <laughs> represent the wax cylinder what, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so rockwell would end up meeting with uh, narmore and avalon and he'd ask about other musicians in the area who might be good enough to make records and so he would tell them about john hurt and not long after that they made a trip over to uh, Mississippi John Hurt's house to set up an audition. Dude, could you imagine, like, a record company comes to your house like, hey, your friend says you're good at music. I brought mics. Let's give you an interview. You're right. like, what? <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> we think of it so differently now, you know what I mean? Like, you, you think of it now, you have to grind 100 years just to even get a talk with the record company. Back then, they're right. out there with their... Yeah, with, they were so desperate. <laughs> we just need somebody. Yeah, no, we, they're out there with the Lomax traveling recording studio in their trunk. <laughs> yeah, well, the Lomaxes were like, cool, we recorded you, have a good life, yeah. later. <laughs> See you, go fuck yourself, I'm not going to pay you for this. This is going to the Library of Congress for free, bitch. <laughs> 
Oh, I never caught that angle of it. I mean, obviously, it's it's not the same. They they were very much like accepted with. Oh no, they, they were. Did. They did it for the love of music and to just make sure that that music never dies. Yeah, and and, and actually, in the beginning, the Lomaxes made a lot of people a lot of money. They they didn't. Some start, people were angry with them yeah, too. You yeah, know? but I mean, I don't know. They didn't get slashed by a razor, so <laughs> they didn't make yeah. them that mad. Yeah, Lead Belly didn't slash him to death, so they must have been all right. <laughs> well, and so for this audition, Hurt would play one song, and about halfway through the second, Rockwell told him to stop. He had heard enough, and he invited him to go to Memphis for a recording session. Hell yeah. On February 14th, 1928, Mississippi John Hurt, for the first time, would... Travel outside of his home state. Oh, shit. For his big recording time, like, debut. And so he ended up recording eight songs for them. Two of them were released on OK8560. And it would be Frankie and Nobody's Dirty Business. Great jams. Nobody's Dirty Business in particular is a really, really, really good jam. And so what happens next has been disputed. Some say the records would sell well and that Hurt was offered a second recording session. Some say they flopped and that Rockwell was convinced that Hurt had something special and would, you know, sell a bunch of records. So he offered him to come back. Either way, he came back for a second recording session. It's just Oh, he wet. sent him to New York. Oh, that, <laughs> that's not just Memphis. <laughs> Sorry, the Memphis studio can't handle you, John Hurt. We're sending you up to New York. And, you know, he would record, like, another five songs up there. But, I mean, this is only the second time he's ever been out of the state of Mississippi, let alone being, like, 30 miles from his home. Yeah, that's ridiculous. To go from a town of 100 people to New York. To New York York City. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's such just, like, a a classic, like, 1930s Southern thing. Like, then you take this this country boy who ain't never been nowhere, and then he goes to New York City. (laughs) Ew! (laughs) I don't know where that came from. But it seemed appropriate. <laughs> uh, obviously, we do this all in good faith. Uh, I know, I know quite a few people from the South, and I love you all, despite your uh, your amazingness. <laughs> well, and so while he was up there in New York for his recording session, you know, he'd miss his wife. He'd miss Mississippi. He's you know comfortable in his hometown, so he'd write a song called Avalon Blues. And there's one line in there that you might want to pay attention to. And it goes, Avalon's my hometown, always on my mind. There's a reason why I mentioned this, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> Just remember that line. And so let's get to our first dude. Check out this song. All right. And these are all picked from his early recordings. We've got Spike Driver Blues. Oh, hell yeah. We got Frankie. Oh, hell yeah. Nobody's Dirty Business. We already talked about how cool that is. Avalon Blues. Which we just talked about, and it's cool. Lewis Collins. Yep. Which we haven't talked about. And is cool. And is awesome. Ain't No Tellin', which he would later use the exact same chords and phrasing to write a song called Make Me a Palette. Yeah, which is probably one of his best works. Candyman Blues and Stacko Lee. Hell yeah. If you've never heard... a. A version of Stackily, Stackoly, or Staggerly. Yeah. Because there's three different namings for the same folk song. If you never heard a version of that, you could start here and then go listen to, well, at one of 100, 150,000 people who've done that song. 
in Mississippi, John Hurt does it the best out of them all. My yeah, my favorite version <laughs> is that one. But of course, his recordings, you know, didn't sell well. They were a disappointment for OK. Oh shit! Each of them only selling a few hundred copies. Yeah, which kind of implies that probably the first one was very similar. So his yeah. the unknown out of the first one was probably that they still had faith in him after the first album, but just the public wasn't in or whatever. Well, some people believe that OK was ultimately responsible for their failure. First, they would give the records titles like Candyman Blues and Stacker Lee Blues when the songs, you know, really didn't have anything in common with traditional Mississippi blues that were coming out at the time. Yeah, so they kind of they kind of misprofiled them. Yep, which sucks because it's it is such like a unique style of blues. Like if you do, if you don't know a lot about it blues, and I said, hey, this is Delta Blues, and played you a Delta Blues song, you most likely would be like. <laughs> That's not what blues sounds like. I've heard blues before. Well, and that kind of touches on the second reason where, you know, he was kind of a songster from the traditional sense and his music was much closer to country music than blues, which, you know, could have been popular among white audiences, but they would insist on listing his records in their race catalog for exclusively black artists. Yeah, that's that. And that that was a just a bad play because, like you said, it really would have played well with wider audiences because of the tone and style of the music. Oh yeah, I mean, it really does have a country feel to it, with you know that the blues like chords chord phrasing around it. Yeah, which it, it kind of this softer Delta Blues. It, when you see Delta Blues in quotation marks, it's one of two things, really. I mainly think of, like, slide guitar. Exactly, because you either get that slide guitar, that 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 twangy, down-south, like, old, dirty blues, where it's yeah. like, bang, 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 or you get this finger-picked, soft, like, like Mississippi John Hurt style. So it's like, it's kind of a, a rare version well, of a rare version of music. This was really rare, like, back in that time, too. Like, and we'll, I'll explain it later. Yeah. It, anyway, whoever was to blame, it was all kind of for not anyway, because, you know, like, a year after his recordings, Great Depression hits. So even if it would have struck a chord with the audience, it, it didn't been, matter. Yeah, they couldn't afford to go buy his records <laughs> or see him play. Nice. So he moves back home to Avalon with his wife and raises his family. You know, farmed, picked up whatever jobs he could, played guitar around town when he could, and... Went back to be a normal person. Normal person. He's forgotten by the rest of the world. Hell yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, whoops. Oh, no. Well, and, you know, I mean, that that's the end of the episode. Yep. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank Goodbye. You, guys. You, you can find his music nowhere. Mississippi John Hurt, nobody knows about him. We just, re we found him ourselves. Just yeah. YouTube him. There's a couple recordings up there or whatever. <laughs> of course, that's not the end of the story. Come on, guys. Did you believe us? Nah, I think we gave away the, the resurgence anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Pretty sure that was one of the first things I mentioned when we started the episode, Ian. Whatever. They were faked out. And so, interest in Mississippi John Hurt would kind of start in the early 1950s. Following a release of Harry Smith's monumental anthology of American folk music, and it was a six-record set that included two of Mississippi John Hurt's songs, Frankie and Spike Driver Blues. Well, like most musicians on the anthology, Mississippi John Hurt was a complete mystery. In fact, most listeners, according to the notes in the re-release of the 1997 anthology, 
They all thought he was white. <laughs> Whoops. That's how rare it was for a black man to play in that style, though. Yeah. Because, like, this was kind of a theme till he was rediscovered was everybody thought he was white. Wow. That's, that is just wild to me because, I don't know, it is such a, like, a classic Southern style, but I just don't, I don't myself recognize the racial barrier in it because I guess I don't really, like... I wasn't well, around. We don't live the time. in that time. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't. I didn't live in the time slash. I don't really listen to like a wide amount of that specific style enough to be like, oh no, it's only a bunch of crackers that are doing this one. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, it, I guess it just goes to show the kind of split there was between the music in in and of themselves because there was legit like racial scenes, as it were, within the music itself. Well, and like we just kind of talked about with the with the record industry making their mistake, you know, forcing it onto this, you know, quote unquote, black cultural, uh, news. Like they've just, they were all about that at this time. And it really is very sad because everything was racially specified. Well, how crazy would that have been if they wouldn't even have mentioned his race? He would have been like, oh, you know. He probably would like have a, gotten fame. Put a white guy on the cover. I bet you he not, sold. <laughs> not even do that. Just put a guitar up there. Everybody's <laughs> going to assume he's a white guy. And he gets up on stage. And everybody goes, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts playing those kick-ass tunes. Yep. They should have done that. I'm sure it actually would have sold a lot better. But somebody would have been mad somewhere along the way. Some white guy. Yeah. Well, and, you know, guitar players were particularly interested, of course, because, you know, he really does have a pretty fascinating finger-picking style, and a lot of them would, you know, struggle to learn his songs from the first anthology. And then, you know, later on, they would dig out some of the old recordings, and 78s would come out of all the other stuff, too. And his his songs are actually very, very hard to learn. They are very hard to learn. Yeah, I mean, if you're a very good guitar player, you could probably pull off some of his stuff with practice, but... I'm actually relearning how to play a few of his songs and learning some new stuff, and I haven't played this in years, and I can't even do it anymore. Yeah, no, exactly. It's something you really have to keep up practice. Uh, obviously, you guys have heard the Decots intro. Uh, the guy who plays that is is really, really good at that style. And, yeah. And even himself can quote, uh, like, the difficulty level of it. So, Well, and even he was not exactly happy with the final product that we put on. But I'm like, I don't know, dude. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not as picky as he is, luckily. Well, he knows that style, though, too, yeah. you know? So. You know, there's a little click here, or so, you know, and stuff in the recording, and it's just like, you know, I mean, it's it's a good good tune, whatever. <laughs> well, it's authentic. That's all that matters, because most of that music has clicks and buzzes. <laughs> well, and according to one story, a man named Andre Segovia, who was like a classical musician, you know, pretty proficient in like a finger-picking style. Yeah. He was brought a recording of Mississippi John Hurt from one of his students, you know, for him to hear their master. Yeah. You know, and after listening to it, he would reportedly ask who was playing the second guitar on the song. <laughs> I actually made that same mistake with John Hurt when I was very <laughs> unknowledgeable. I swore to God there was somebody else playing behind him. <laughs> It does, and that's how cool it is because he he has that driving bass line with his thumb, and then he's got these lead lines that are just perfect. And then somehow he simultaneously drops in those uh, 
those kind of fingernail sweeps through it, which actually gives it a strum on top of the double, like dual tonality picking. Those are the hard. The those are the hardest parts to learn, dude. Yeah, because it's it's so weird and unique, and like it, you get an actual full strum out of the guitar while still doing the finger picking, and no rhythm is lost, and it just sounds like witchcraft unless you can do it. Oh, it's definitely witchcraft. 100% witchcraft. <laughs> Burn him. Well, in fact, like I said, I'm trying to relearn these songs. I actually have an old acoustic I dug out that I'm not using. I'm literally bringing it to work to play on my breaks. Nice. Because <laughs> I don't sit with anybody anyway, and I'm tired of playing on my damn phone. So it's like I might as well actually learn something cool. Yeah, no, exactly. It's better to have a guitar than a phone in that situation 90% of the time. Well, and so in the early 1960s, Two young folk musicians in Washington, D.C., Tom Hoskins, I mentioned earlier, who Mississippi John Hurt actually would write to. Yeah. And Mike Stewart heard Avalon Blues on a tape a record collector had given them. What year was this? All I could find was the early 60s. Oh, okay. So, yeah, sometime in the 60s. I would, I would guess it would be like 61, 62. Yeah. 62 is a good year, too. Yeah, 62 is a fantastic year for music. So we're just going to decide it's 1962. We have established it. Well, and you remember that line, Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind? Yep. Well, they would wonder if there is actually a city called Avalon in Mississippi. Would John Hurt still live there? He did and would. Well, they would start looking, and they couldn't find Avalon on any contemporary maps. But they would finally find the tiny-ass little town... On a atlas that was published in 1878. Holy shit. <laughs> so you're talking almost 100 years later. So the town was still there, but it wasn't on any map? Yeah. That is so fucking cool. Like, that to me still sounds insane. Like, the 1800s, that there were places in America that weren't mapped like that. But obviously, you know, that's, that's the case. You know, it, it makes sense. Well, and so, you know, as was popular with the 60s blues revival to do, they grabbed their tape recorder and went to the Delta. <laughs> yeah, they pulled Lomax. And they would discover that Avalon wasn't much more than a general store on the road between Grenada and Greenwood. Hell yeah. <laughs> they would ask some men sitting in front of the store if they had ever heard of Mississippi John Hurt. One pointed and said, a mile down that road, third mailbox up, can't miss it. <laughs> That's so fucking cool. I know. I want to find an old blues musician that way. How yeah. awesome would that be? Third mailbox <laughs> up, bro. <laughs> well, and so when they arrived at uh, Mississippi John Hurt's house, he was out in the fields on his tractor. <laughs> That's a great place to find him. The only better place would have been like if he's just sitting on the porch, you know, plunking away on his guitar. <laughs> Howdy, neighbor. <laughs> well, and they would introduce themselves. And explained that were that they were interested in his music. They pulled out their tape recorder, and from there, his second career, or really his real career, started. And so, when Hoskins got back to Washington, he ended up releasing two albums of the songs he recorded at the farm. And not long after that, Mississippi John Hurt moves to Washington D.C. to play at local folk clubs. Hell yeah! He ended up playing in the 1963 Newport Folk Festival. And later that same year at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, you know, he's a hit at both of them, dude. People loved him. 
Yeah, and then we we already talked about the Newport Folk Festival one time. Two years later is when Bob Dylan would go electric. Boom. Oh. Just letting everybody know to re, to revitalize that same thing that we've talked about before already. Well, and he was in his 70s by the time this happened, too. Yeah. So he literally, like, just lived his whole entire life out, like, never playing in front of, like, large groups of people. And all of a sudden, he's, like, famous yep. in this scene. It's- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is quite insane, though, the way that works. And so, yeah, he would just start touring festivals and folk clubs throughout the country. He'd end up releasing albums for the Piedmont and Vanguard labels. And this time his records were popular. And, you know, he'd entrance his fans with a broad repertoire of ballads, ragtime numbers, and old pop tunes. Some religious songs thrown in there, storytelling, and of course, his lovely personality. Hell yeah, which is lovely. He is he is a, a charming old man, to say the least. Yeah, he would actually end up recording most of his uh, repertoire for the Library of Congress. And I say most, and when I bought this, it was two CDs, and I want to say 40 songs long or something. Yeah. And, you know, this is like 30-some years later when yep. he got rediscovered, and he could still play all these songs. Yeah, and they they were really good jams, too. So, like, all of the... When it goes in the Library of Congress, it becomes, like, I don't know, national property for all Americans. And it really is, like... I don't know. One of the more patriotic things you can do is have good music and give it to the Library of Congress. Well, and, you know, we mentioned the song Stack of Lee. He would end up recording a version of that, and he just goes, and he's kind of plucking some strings, and he tells this little story that leads right up to it, and then out of nowhere, he just starts singing the song. It's so awesome. Yeah, it's one of those, like, uh, I don't know, like, folk singer stage presences that, that you either have it or you don't. I don't know. You you have to be able to walk or wander up there, tell an incomprehensible story with a couple of giggles and a, and a snide smile, and then kick right into a song at the right moment, and it's just thematically perfect. Well, and he would end up touring with artists like Mississippi Fred McDowell, Elizabeth Cotton, Reverend Gary Davis, John Lee Hooker, Brownie McGee, and Sonny Terry. Yeah, and those are some good names, especially Reverend Gary Davis. Yeah, that's another uh, finger picker, but he does like um, uh, this called like Piedmont Blues style. Oh, yes. And so it's definitely a more bluesy style for sure, but it's another finger picking style that... I would love to learn someday. Yeah, and, and those finger picking styles—they really are like the highest difficulty. They—they're they're so hard. <laughs> they are up there as one of the hardest things you can do on like the actual guitar. Up there with some of that like classical, you know, you know, I don't know, like flamenco kind of flick that you do with your finger and stuff like that. Like that stuff's very, very, very hard too. Well, and like I said earlier, you know. His finger-picking style was unusual among black players of his time, right? Yeah. And the only person in that list that I had never heard of was Elizabeth Cotton, but apparently she was, like, the only other one who really used the same, like, guitar technique. Oh, and yeah? she was also self-taught. Huh, that's cool. So that makes me really want to check her out because if she was of the same style, I really would like to check out and see what she had to bring to the table. Yeah, fuck Yeah. And so, you know, he would actually end up having a huge impact on guitar players. Like uh, Doc Watson, you know, would adapt a lot of his techniques, you know. One of my favorite guitar players. That dude could play the shit out of anything. Yeah, Doc Watson is fantastic. 
and, you know, some other finger-picking guitar players like Leo Kott and Steven Grossman. And I don't expect you to know them, but Steven Grossman actually, uh, he's uh, how I learned how to play Mississippi John Hurt because he stayed with him for a while, and Mississippi John Hurt actually taught him how to play a bunch of his songs. Nice. And so he compiled a, like, tab book of, like, stuff he did. Oh, that's fucking cool. But, yeah, so this kind of gave me a chuckle, too, because when most guitar players first begin learning how to finger pick, some of the first tunes they usually learn are Lewis Collins or Stack Lee Blues, which is the first two finger picking songs I learned how to play. <laughs> yeah, they're really the most accessible ones. Uh, that's that's one of the funny things is they're both not easy songs to play, but they're still the most accessible ones in the genre. I would say Stack Lee is easier, but... When you don't know how to finger pick and you're trying to figure it out, he throws this weird hammer on rhythm on it and it just it throws you off for so long. Oh yeah, absolutely. You're gonna like this one. He was once asked if he knew how good his music was, and he would answer, Yeah, I know it. I've been knowing it. But I never dreamed things would have turned out like they have. Never dreamed it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that like just like the most like non-egotistical answer ever? Yeah. Just like, yeah, I knew it was good, but I never figured things would be like this. Yeah, no, I liked it, but I didn't know you guys would like it. It's a pre- pretty much what he just said. Right. And so after three years living in Washington, D.C., touring the country, recording music, he'd move back to Mississippi and settle down in Grenada, you know, which was about 20 miles east of Avalon. And, you know, he'd come back to Avalon here and there while he was still there. But on November 2nd, 1966, he'd end up dying from myocardial infarction in the Grenada Hospital at 74 years old. Aww. So this... He really didn't live much too longer after he left the whole thing. So it was like three years after he became re-famous that yeah. he died. Because he, he lived in Washington, D.C. for three years and then moved back. I wonder if it was all the hard partying. Oh, yeah. He partied <laughs> so hard. <laughs> but 74, man, that's a good run. He was a... That is, a, that is an old age, especially if, like, just a few years ago you were on a tractor fucking yeah, doing he work. He like, back-breaking labor his whole life. Yeah, That's exactly. all he did. Yeah, so you got to have some props for that guy. And then he had his brief little... Uh, you know, he had his 15 minutes, and I actually... I heard a story, but I couldn't confirm this, that people were starting to argue about who had the rights to record him. And he was just like, you know what? I'm done with you guys. And he moved home. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it started to become kind of a kind of drama. And he yeah. just didn't care. He's, you know, he's like, I'm 70-something. I don't know when exactly I was born. but He probably made just <laughs> enough money to be, like, living happily for the rest of his life. It's like, why do I care anymore than this, guys? Yeah. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> and so he'd end up being buried in the Hurt family gravesite on top of the Valley Hills. And yes, he actually had a gravestone. Don't worry, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> I was starting to get worried. I'm sorry. It was, it's always like I get to this part. And I'm worried that somebody's going to get buried without a gravestone. I don't know why it bothers me so goddamn much, but it bothers me now. Well, and actually, I found a picture of his gravestone. Oh, and, yeah? And it looks like the coolest, like, blues music. Because it's just, it's like, looks like it's in some random garden. And, like, you know, there's just, like, trees around, and it's just, like, there. And it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, oh, I must go find this grave and pray on his... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please give me your powers, Mississippi John Hurt. <laughs> yeah, like, you would go on a pilgrimage to find this. Yeah, exactly. 
And so singer, songwriter, guitarist, and harmonica player John Sebastian founded the band The Love and Spoonful in 1964. He had grown up in and around the Greenwich Village area in New York and you know had seen artists like Lead Belly, Sonny Terry, Lightning Hopkins. And Dude, yeah. He lived through seeing Lead Belly, huh? Didn't get yeah. slashed up by a razor Didn't at all. Didn't get slashed up. But he also would see Mississippi John Hurt. Hell yeah. And now the word spoonful has been used to describe, you know, drug paraphernalia. Also sometimes used as a metaphor for, you know, semen. His band was actually named after the song Coffee Blues, where he would essentially write like a jingle, a three-minute jingle for a Maxwell House brand. (laughs) (laughs) Where he says, you just got to have a loving spoonful. And... You know, apparently that was his favorite brand of coffee. So, (laughs) (laughs) in in fact, in his Library of Congress recording where he's playing in front of like a shitload of people, he goes, it's good to the last drop. (laughs) 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 And so let's get to my last dude check out the song. I didn't throw a whole lot in because I just, you know, his story to me is like, a classic or not even classic, just a very unique and awesome, you know, bluesman story. And so we got coffee blues. You got to walk that lonesome Valley, which is actually a song that I'm currently trying to learn how to play. So fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) It is not even his hardest song. That's what's frustrating. (laughs) We got payday since I've laid my burden down. Another one of his great gospel songs. Yeah, that's his, that is honestly one of my favorite songs of his in general. See, that used to be one of my favorites, but you got to walk that Lonesome Valley has really been taking up a lot of my time in the last year. Like just yeah. just listening to it, I've been really obsessed with this song because it's also a gospel song. But it just there's something about it that has really like rang true to me. Like it's fun and unique. Yeah. It really is. And then we've got I've had trouble all my days, which I mean from the sounds of it. He really hasn't had that much trouble. He just, you know, he worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's the classic blues thing. You know, I've got trouble on my mind. I've got trouble on my days. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Richland Woman Blues, which was actually the first song I ever heard of his because you played it for me. Yep. This is a this is a great <laughs> fucking song, too. And it's funny because it's about all these white women who live in these, you know, rich mansions coming into the black neighborhood when their husbands are out of town yep. to sleep with a bunch of people. Yep. It's, it's, it's a little gem of culture. You guys should, if nothing else, you should listen to it once just so you can see how uh, how interesting the perspective is. And then we've got Waiting for a Train, Salty Dog Blues, and then one that I totally forgot about until I started doing this is Hop Joint. Yeah. I so forgot about this song. Like, I probably heard it like 10 years ago, and it just faded from my memory. Yeah, when we listened to it on our warm-up today, I was like, oh, shit, I haven't listened to this song in so long, but it <laughs> is 10 out of 10. And I even quoted one of the lines from it, too, <laughs> yep. in this episode. But honestly, like, I could keep going. I Forever. Lo- I love his music. There his is a lot. His guitar playing is so awesome. But, you know, you guys got to discover this shit for yourself, like, don't let me tell you what's awesome. Like, yeah, we'll, you, we'll you, throw on maybe a few extras on the I definitely on the will. Yeah, make sure that we really thicken it up. But uh, if you like what you hear from our, all our stuff, make sure you go look up your own Mississippi John Hurt adventure. Yeah, and he's got 
a ton of recordings just from that three-year span and a shitload of live stuff. Yep. Some studio stuff. It, and it's all, it is all very, very high quality. He's not an artist that has like a fluctuation in quality. He hits the Mississippi John Hurt like quality of good all the time. And only a few songs are not his normal quality and they are exceptionally above. I, I think there's only one song that I've heard of his that I don't like. And it's just because I think he tried to go something a little out of his norm. He was trying to play the slide thing and it just wasn't him. But everything else I've heard from him, fucking amazing. Yeah, it is it is honestly really worth listening to. And so I think it's time for uh, some last thoughts. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to go first, but there's not a lot of last thoughts that I can give you for Mississippi John Hurt besides fucking listen to Mississippi John Hurt. This is such a good, a good idealization of what I've said before, where just because music is popular doesn't mean it's good. Someone like Mississippi John Hurt can play his whole life and go till he's 70 without anybody finding out about it. And that's why I wanted to bring the story because ever since I found out about it, it was always just like, Oh, this is like the most blue story I've ever heard. Yeah, no, exactly. And so it really goes to show like there are so many hidden gems out there in our world that we haven't actually gotten to yet. So, you know, maybe if you're, uh, if you're ever feeling adventurous, go out there and look, cause I bet you'll find some gems. And, Honestly, you pretty much covered my last thoughts. So, yeah, just listen to Mississippi John Hurt. And if you're so inclined, spend the time to learn his songs. It's tough. Yeah, and, and, you know, even if you don't learn them on guitar, just learn the vocals and sing along with them because it's honestly one of the most joyous things I can do is sit around and, you know, with, with a cup of Maxwell House coffee <laughs> in the morning and listen to Mississippi John Hurt. And if you're sipping some Maxwell House coffee while listening to this, please share it with your friends. We would really appreciate that. You know what else is good? The last drop giving us five stars on whatever social media you listen to. <laughs> you are so right about that. Good to the last quarter star. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, guys, we fucking love you. I, I don't know. We we have trouble being genuine with this last part because, you know, we repeat it every week. But it is it is something we have to say. It is super true. So just support us if you can. I I love you guys. Thanks for listening to Do Check Out This Song. Uh, have another loving spoonful on me. Good night.